You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Questions is only as good as it can be used. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. People often ask where I get the inspiration for these shows. The answers are as different as the shows themselves. This time, I'm finally sitting down to learn more about an organization whose work I have admired from afar for quite some time. Some months ago, I reached out to the Right Question Institute that offers a simple, powerful strategy to build people's skills to ask better questions, participate in decisions that affect them, advocate for themselves, and partner with service providers. In other words, they teach people ways to be curious in service of their own empowerment. So fast forward to today, and I have the genuine pleasure of having Andrew Minigan, Right Question Institute's Director of Strategy for the Education Programs, with me by phone. As a part of Andrew's work with RQI, he's the co-PI on the National Science Foundation-funded research grant to develop a strategy so researchers, including doctoral students and faculty in higher education, can learn how to formulate better, more transformative research questions. He's facilitated learning experiences for faculty and doctoral students at many, many colleges and universities, and hundreds of faculty and students from around the country have participated in its active learning experiences. With support from the John Templeton Foundation, from 2015 to 2018, he led RQI's Million Classroom Campaign and helped to scale up this pedagogical innovation that has students from across all grade levels honing their question formulation skills and becoming more curious, self-directed learners. So welcome, Andrew. Thank you. It's great to be here, Lynn. So tell me about the origins of the Right Question Institute. How did this all get started? Yeah, so the work of the Right Question Institute, uh, it did not start in the academy. It didn't start in a research lab. Uh, and it didn't start in a think tank, but rather the work of the Right Question Institute began in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1990. Lawrence, Massachusetts is a low-income city, former textile manufacturing city, uh, just outside of Boston. And it was parents in Lawrence, Massachusetts, uh, who were the initial source of inspiration for this work. Uh, they, they had the insight that said, we don't go to the school because we don't even know what to ask. And so these were yeah. parents who weren't going to the schools, who were not participating in their children's education, again, because they identified this barrier to participation that they didn't know what questions to ask, so they felt like they couldn't go. And so it's through that original insight that uh, Lou Santana, Dan Rothstein, the current co-directors and two co-founders of the Right Question Institute, realized what these parents need is a list of questions. And if these parents mm -hmm. had a list of questions, then they would be able to go and effectively engage with the educators and the folks in the schools. And it only took Dan and Luce maybe one or two thousand times of doing that before <laughs> they realized they were actually cultivating a dependency on them for the question. Yeah. And what they really needed to do was create the space and opportunities so parents themselves for themselves could hone and develop this really critical skill for thinking, for learning, and for participating in democratic institutions. 
so then what did they do? So the next step, of course, was uh, actually developing a strategy that would create that space so individuals for themselves could learn how to formulate their own questions, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, work with and improve those questions, prioritize those questions, and strategize on how to use them. And so the real tough work was the work of the Right Question Institute, developing a simple yet powerful strategy that could do that so all individuals could go through that process and start to, again, develop that skill for themselves. So um, they developed this stepwise process called the question formulation technique that has a series of steps um, and some rules that helps individuals go through that process. So they go in focusing on a problem, and they leave the process with a list of questions and priority questions that they would begin to ask and use. I have been talking with friends and colleagues and people in kind of all sorts of disciplines, and even in preparation for my own show, using this technique or, you know, a variation on the technique to kind of prime the pump. And here's a little testimonial. It's incredibly effective. So it's not just for parents dealing with school systems. This is really about systemic engagement in basically any venue, isn't it? Exactly. And and what we're finding is that it's a universally relevant strategy, uh, intentionally and deliberately nurturing this skill because it's just been traditionally a skill we've overlooked. Mm-hmm. And it's a skill that requires real practice and rigor in developing. So you actually have some steps that uh, you teach students. Walk us through that process because I actually think each of these steps is a little bit of genius in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and just as you mentioned how um, this has been, uh, you know, applied in many different ways. In 2011, Dan Rothstein and Lou Santana, again, the co-founders and co-directors of the Right Question Institute, published Make Just One Change with Harvard Education Press. It's one of their all-time bestsellers, and they introduced the strategy to the classroom. And so that book details some of these steps. But, you know, it's so simple it can fit on a one-pager, the entire process. So the first part of the question formulation technique is to introduce the rules for producing questions. And Luce and Dan distilled um, many different rules into just four rules because they uh, came to learn that too many rules was too problematic and it was Mm -hmm. confusing for the process. And so that was part of the challenging work in designing the strategy. And so they distilled it down to four rules, which are ask as many questions as you can, Um, You're not going to stop to answer, judge, or discuss your questions. All you're going to hear in that room is the sound of questions being asked. Uh, Whoever is transcribing questions is going to write down every question exactly as it is stated, and any statement that is asked would be changed into a question. And so those are the four questions, sorry, those are the four rules for producing questions that create the Uh, environment so all individuals have an opportunity to engage in inquiry without feeling like they're going to be judged. So it really, again, it cultivates that equitable learning environment. Right. And I I mean, I found that sort of each of those steps in its own way had, had kind of its own secret sauce to it, that the capturing all of the questions without judgment Mm-hmm. is actually pretty revolutionary because we judge ourselves on our questions all the time. That's a stupid question. That's a good question. And and the liberty of just, you know, kind of keep going and, and spinning them off 
and kind of discovering questions that you wouldn't necessarily have had if you just sort of wrote down like, oh, well, what are my five questions that I want to ask? It's like, no, 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 no. By the time you get to question number 45, then you're really getting <laughs> interesting. And doing it with someone else is so interesting because they pursue avenues that I might never have seen. And suddenly lights go on in rooms that I didn't even know were there. So that's a really effective way of validating a lot of different perspectives just at the outset. Exactly. And if you if you tell someone to come up with five questions, guess how many questions they're going to come up with? Yeah. So there's a real beauty in, you know, that first rule, ask as many questions as you can, because people leave this process saying, I've never asked 30 questions in one sitting. This is the most questions I've ever formulated at once. And as you were alluding to about the, the second rule, don't stop to answer, judge, or discuss, so often we're quick to praise and laud, you know, really good questions. But we also sometimes don't give enough uh, sort of appreciation to other questions. So, Lynn, if you asked a question that was just as good as another question I had said, that's a great question. But to you, I just said, oh, thanks, Lynn. That's, that's a good question, too. Mm-hmm. You know, internally, you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, apparently my question wasn't as good as that other question that was just asked. <laughs> and, you, you know, your engagement might actually be squelched as yeah. a result. You might be less apt to uh, participate again. So, you know, again, this rule really emphasizes the importance of not differentially praising or underappreciating questions. So it's a judgment-free zone. Well, and then I like sort of taking the time to, you know, sort of write them down exactly as you ask them and then sort of going back and kind of revisiting the question and sort of thinking about, hmm, if I pose this question just a little bit differently, what different sorts of uh, response or answer might it drive towards to really be thoughtful about the questions that we're asking once we've sort of gone through the generation process so that we don't curb our enthusiasm there, but we kind of circle back over it. That iterative process seems to me to be a really important part of this as well. Sort of being curious about the questions and sort of, is that getting at what I really want? Is there something, is there another way of asking it? That's really instructive. Right, right. And and so what you're alluding to, so after pre- uh, presenting the four rules for producing questions, individuals would for a set amount of time, ask questions about some focus. So it could be an image, it could be a statement, it could be an article, it could be a thought. That's called the question focus. And so individuals would go through that process while following the rules. And after that process, individuals would learn about two different types of questions. Closed-ended questions, which can be answered with a yes, no, or one word, and open-ended questions, which Mm -hmm. cannot be answered with a yes, no, uh, or one word, and require more explanation. And so Individuals go through their list of questions and identify their closed-ended questions and open-ended questions. And after that, um, they talk about and think about the advantages and disadvantages of different types of questions. And in fact, too often we're quick to point to open-ended questions as being more provocative or more important or more ambitious or more philosophical in nature. But in reality, a question is only as good as it can be used. And so in some instances, (laughs) a closed-ended question is going to get you a whole lot further down the line to what you're trying to work towards than an open-ended question is because different questions will elicit different types of information and can therefore be used differently. And so through this process, not only do individuals learn how to identify different types of questions and think about how their advantages and disadvantages, 
but they also learn how simply rewording even one word in a question can change the types of information that is elicited. And that can be a really transformative experience for individuals, all individuals. I've heard from doc students and faculty members that you know they had never thought about how the wording could so impact their investigation. Yeah. Well, and we've been talking about this largely in sort of an academic context, but you all also have been working with this process in what you call micro-democracy, an expression I love, in terms of empowering people to ask questions within systems for their own self-advocacy. And that's where some of those closed-ended questions are really helpful, too. It's like, I need a, I need a very specific answer, right? And helping people do that. So talk about some of what you've been doing there, because this, to me, is really cool. Yeah, all of our work is driving towards this idea that all public institutions are opportunities where individuals can learn mm-hmm. this skill mm-hmm. of question formulation, but they're also institutions where individuals can effectively employ the skill of question formulation. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, my colleagues, my work is primarily in K-12 and higher education. Uh, my colleagues work more, uh, you know, in the social services and the healthcare, in other public institutions, uh, where, again, as you mentioned, individuals are able to effectively use this skill to hold decision makers accountable. So if I go into the healthcare office or if I go into the doctor's office, I know that there are certain questions that I want answered. And a close-ended question can be a really quick way to do that. And so if my doctor suggests changing my medication, for example, there's a very important close-ended question there, mm-hmm. which is, do I need to change my medication? Right. Yes or no. Are there other you know, options for changing my medication? Yes or no. And so you know, too often we take the recommendations of people and decision makers without questioning them. And so questions can be an effective way to you know, not only hold decision makers accountable, but begin to explore other opportunities or other avenues um, that that maybe just haven't been explored. Yeah. Well, I love this idea of questioning as empowering, mm-hmm. um, and and certainly in in your area of focus in the educational context, it's very empowering for kids to take ownership on their own learning process. Do you have good stories that illustrate that? I just feel certain that you do. Yeah, so one of one of our favorite stories that we allude to was uh, there was a young man, uh, a, a ninth grader, I believe, in Boston, Massachusetts, who he was in a summer remedial program, uh, in, again, in Boston, in a high school in Boston. And he went through the QFT. He learned about how to ask questions. His reflection that day was that the QFT made me feel smart because I was asking good questions and giving good answers. Ah, uh. And so smart might not be a word that this student typically used to describe himself. Again, it was a student in a summer remedial program. But this student, after learning the power and value of asking questions and that he himself can find the answers to those questions, Mm -hmm. um, felt that affective change. Again, he felt smart. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, we hear that time and time again from students all over the country, students in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, who are saying that all learning begins with a question, even if you don't realize it. A first grader in just outside of Detroit, Michigan, who says that we ask questions so we can become more curious. Mm. You know, that's Mm -hmm. a pretty profound statement coming from a first grader. Right, right. So you've also been working on sort of taking this to scale. Talk about what that looks like. So part of our work the past, I would say, 
three or four years was to effectively work towards democratizing access to this skill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we believe it's a skill all individuals should have the opportunity to develop. As you mentioned, it's so universally relevant to our day-to-day lives, not just our learning in the classroom, but um, how we're navigating different experiences in our lives, um, that we really felt the onus as the Right Question Institute to, to share this far and wide. And so uh, we've actually been trying to share our resources through a Creative Commons license, which means individuals are free to come to our website, download them, take them back to their organizations, take them back to their schools, districts, states, and share them far and wide to adapt them, to tailor them, uh, to better support their ongoing work. You know, we really don't want to be the ones just keeping this close to our chest. We really want people to take this and run with it. So in just, I believe, three years, we went from having a website of about eight or 9,000 educators signed up to now over 41,000 teachers oh signed gosh. up accessing resources and, and really facilitating more curious learning environments. That's really, really impressive. So so let me ask you the, the miracle question. What would the world look like or what would the first thing be that we would notice if we woke up tomorrow morning and everybody had earned, had internalized this kind of approach to question asking what what would we notice well that's a that's a pretty provocative profound uh <laughs> well you know <laughs> you're thinking no, big no, i'm asking big yeah. yeah that's a big that's a big one uh you know, I, I really think if that was what we woke up to tomorrow, we would appreciate how how much more equitable our society would be, how much more uh-huh. democratic our society would be, yeah. um, how much more engaged individuals would be in many different facets of our democratic institutions. Again, not just in voting every two or four years or every year, but just in all of the democratic institutions, in the community, in the schools, in the welfare office. And that people would really, you know, feel more agency in their mm-hmm. lives as mm-hmm. a result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you also have two areas of research that you've been focused on that I want to kind of drill into a little bit. One is the work that you're doing to help researchers and doctoral students and faculty in higher education ask better research questions. And the other is how this process really supports curiosity in and of itself. Where do you want to, which one do you want to take first? Yeah, let's, let's dive into the, uh, the the work in higher ed that I've, I've been uh, spearheading with yeah, some of my yeah. colleagues. So uh, about, uh, I believe, two years ago, maybe closer to a year and a half ago, uh, we began work on a National Science Foundation-funded research grant to take these resources that we've developed, again, primarily for the K-12 context, and to tailor them so researchers in higher education doctoral students and faculty alike, so that they can take them and begin to ask better, more transformative research questions. Uh, You know, so often in research, I I think, you know, someone, you know, I come from a little bit of a research background myself. Um, I think too often we get a little bit comfortable in these sort of one degree pivots in that you identify a really narrow gap in the literature, you devise a really clever research design to address that gap, and you plug along on your Uh, research program. But what we're working towards is developing resources that doctoral students and faculty can use to think more divergently when Mm. they're coming up with research questions, to tackle it from a more creative uh, lens, 
and think in many different directions, and then also think divergently in prioritizing their questions uh, through this process to, to really land on high-impact, highly uh, relevant research questions that are really going to uh, advance the research in more new, exciting ways. Well, and what I like about that approach is that you're also saying even the people who like do this stuff for a living or who are building the skills to do it for a living, even they can get better at this. It's like you would think they would be good at it, but in fact, there's always room for improvement. I think that's actually a pretty meaningful, important message. And we've heard from people at the pinnacle of their professions in industry and higher ed and any context, across all contexts, that this is something that they've been missing. Mm. Um, I, I, I was working with a student last week, a group of students, but there's this one student in, um, in particular who was going through the, he hadn't even gone through the experience yet. He was going through the pre-workshop questionnaire where, you know, we're trying to assess how confident they are, how effective they feel like their question formulation skills are. Uh, he was going through the pre-workshop questionnaire and he recognized that this is something he had been missing, and yet it was such a critical part of his everyday work. Um, and so, again, we hear that time and time again. And so there's a real need to develop resources and make those available to folks in all contexts from all educational backgrounds. Yeah, nice, nice. So some of the findings that are emerging from our NSF-funded research is that we're seeing doctoral students are feeling more confident in their ability to ask mm -hmm. questions. They feel like they're more effective at asking research questions. They're more efficiently asking questions. They're asking more questions than they have ever had before. And they're also now naming that they have strategies and tools to do this type of thinking um, that didn't exist before. So we're really excited. You know, again, it's just uh, our second year, but some of these, this evidence has been really, uh, really insightful and, and revelatory. Well, and I'm struck, as you were just saying that, that one of the things, and you've said this a couple of points today, where... People are asking more questions. We're sort of returning to a time in our lives where we asked a lot of questions. You know, all this research about, you know, young children ask lots of questions and then we sort of kind of die off and don't do that anymore. But you're sort of bringing that back and putting that back into people's lives and hearing from people that it really adds value. Exactly. It's how do you tap into that childlike wonderment and curiosity? Yeah. And, and we hear from doctoral students that coming up with a lot of questions helps helps them to come up with a few really good questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, circling to the point of curiosity, I know you were interested in, in talking a little bit about that research. Uh, some of our colleagues, researchers at Boston University, recently published a research study. I forget which journal it was in, but uh, it was recently published. And it found that high school students in the humanities who learn how to ask questions through the question formulation technique became more curious thinkers and learners and were able to think more divergently. Mm -hmm. And so traditionally, we think if you're a curious person, you're going to ask a heck of a lot of questions. But this research, a little bit counterintuitively, says if you begin to learn how to ask questions and do this as a part of your learning process, you're going to become a more curious thinker and learner as a result. Nice. Nice. Well, and you have somewhere on your website this idea about thinking in questions, actually kind of getting people to a place of rather than thinking in declarative, like I know the answer, thinking in questions as a, as a regular habit, which strikes me as very powerful. It can really help to reframe our perception of not knowing 
from it being a weakness to it being a strength. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can imagine you're being in a meeting and, you know, you're just afraid to ask that one question, right? You, you don't want to be that person asking the question to be perceived in such a way. But cultivating a habit of mind that values uh, curiosity and values the process of asking questions can really, I think, help individuals engage in such a way where they're not afraid of being, you know, perceived as stupid or unintelligent because they don't know something, but that can actually help to accelerate the learning or collaborative process. Very cool. Very cool. So, you know, analogies are a really good learning process as well. So are you ready for my big jar of wannabe analogies? Uh, I guess so. All right. So you're there. I'm here. So I have taken one out for you. Let's see. Okay. Mine is necklace and yours is yoga. <laughs> you want to go first or you want me to go? Uh, I'm going to I'm going to defer to you. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Uh mine is necklace. How is curiosity like a necklace? Um I'm going to say that curiosity is like ought to be like a necklace because I think it's something that we ought to wear um and other people we hope we'll admire and enjoy it as well, but that it's it's actually an adornment. I think curiosity is really an adornment um, and makes us all more attractive. There we go. Okay. Oof. I, I, I should have gone first. That's going to be a tough <laughs> one to follow. Oh, I have faith in you. So how is curiosity like yoga? All right. Curiosity is like yoga. Well, you know, I, 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 as someone who doesn't practice yoga, so I apologize to any yogis listening in, uh, you know, like yoga, curiosity is, is a process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's something that you have to work towards and intentionally and deliberately cultivate. And that, you know, it's, it's not something that you're just going to step into and get right that first time, but it's something you, you really have to work at the process. Nice. Nice. See? See? Lovely. All those so. all those yogis out there are appreciating the validation of their practice. <laughs> um, and audience, um, yours is puddles. How is curiosity like a puddle? Let us know. Facebook, Twitter, hashtag analogy. Well, Andrew, before I let you go, where can people learn more? So if you're an educator, if you're someone working with other individuals that might benefit from learning this skill, if you're just someone who's looking to learn for yourself how to ask better questions, check out www.rightquestion.org. Uh, we have tons of free resources, videos, tools, articles, everything you could ever imagine up on that website. And that, again, it's all for free. We're really trying to support your work in whatever way we can and, and work towards a, a world that's more inquisitive and democratic. So check it, check out rightquestion.org. Uh, we're also on Twitter at rightquestion, and you can find me on Twitter at Andrew RQI. Cool. And I can vouch for all of those materials. I'm kind of your website junkie over here. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, nice. Well, thank you so much for this, Andrew. And I look forward to watching RQI continue to break new ground. Thanks, Lynn. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great shows here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can catch all my previous shows on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to Be Curious, and on my website at choosetobecurious.com. 
I hope you'll follow me there and on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. Many thanks to my guest, Andrew Minigan. Links to Right Question Institute on Facebook and my website. Check it out. Our theme and other music is by Sean Ballack. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com. Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.